The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me. Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPods. All right, we're here with Lloyd Bell, and I like to say the great Lloyd Bell. Due to his own humility, makes him blush a little, but Lloyd and I have been friends now for about three years because we met during the pandemic. The folks over at Courtroom View Network suggested I reach out to Lloyd to see if he wanted to do a webinar, and Lloyd was gracious enough to do it, and that was at the beginning of my webinaring career, and so I can acknowledge I was still developing my hosting skills, as I am on this podcast, but I feel like it just takes time and practice and self-critique and review. But Lloyd survived those early days of the webinars to become really a mainstay on our webinars, if anything to do with medical malpractice and fall downs, but really medical malpractice. And I've been grateful for his contributions. I know people in this in the Trial Lawyers University community have been grateful. Like Lauren Byrne from Virginia recently got a verdict, and I talked to her about it this morning. It's taught me how much she learned from Lloyd out in Las Vegas. So I'm really glad to be Lloyd's friend. And get to have, and Lloyd teaches most of our conferences, which is really great too, because he's a great teacher, besides being a great lawyer. So, well, thanks for coming, Lloyd. Yeah, man, I appreciate that introduction. And uh, I did not expect our friendship and our collaboration to uh, be as robust when you called me during the pandemic. And I didn't know you. I think I'd met you at a conference at one point, didn't know anything about you. And you called and asked me to uh, talk about a case study. And, you know, it was the pandemic, there were no trials going on. A lot of free time. And I said, sure. I did not know what I was getting into with you, but I'm glad I did. And I've enjoyed working with you and enjoy the whole process. So thank you for having me on today. Well, it's been great. You know, it's been it's so amazing. It's been three years, but I feel like we're just getting started and getting better. I work every day to get better at the conference, the live events, try to make them really great for the speakers, for the attendees and for the exhibitors, because it takes a community to make it all work. And everybody has to win. If there's just one person or you know, one segment winning and the other people aren't, it doesn't really work so well. So well, keep working on this every day, getting better at these different things. <laughs> well, it takes a lot of enthusiasm and energy and you bring those qualities to everything you've, I've seen you do. So I enjoy your show and well, I enjoy your podcast. I enjoy your case study work, but at the uh, seminars, the highlight, because you pay attention to the details, you pay attention to the experience, not just the education, which is great. And it's just a great experience. Made a lot of friends through it. Enjoyed being a part of it. Well, thanks. You missed the last one. You only appeared virtually, but I know you. a trial was disrupting it. We're going to talk about that trial a little bit later. But before we get into those more details of trial and your philosophy on trial, and let me ask you, like, how did you get into becoming a lawyer? What brought you to the law? Kind of came in a different route. I was going to be a doctor. And I was pre-med. And my father was a doctor. He was a surgeon. So I'd sort of grown up around medicine and I didn't really think about law. I enjoyed science and I thought I was on the track to go to medical school. And I went into went to college and was pre-med and I enjoyed the science classes, but I enjoyed the liberal arts even more. I enjoyed the history and English and philosophy. And I started talking to my father about it. And he said, well, you know, you really should look at law school and think about that as an option if you're really not committed to medicine. And I was not committed to another four years of medical school and residency and all that. So that's kind of how I 
opened the door in my mind to law school, but did not expect to be doing medical malpractice, which I've had uh, a lot of questions about that. You know, why? Your father was a doctor. What are you doing suing doctors? Isn't that a betrayal? Yeah, it's a good question, right? Is it some kind of Freudian acting out against your dad? And the opposite is true. My dad's passed away now, but uh, he was very supportive in the early days because he had so little tolerance for bad medicine. I remember him being very critical when he would see healthcare providers not doing their job. So he held the profession to a very high standard. And when I first started doing medical cases, he would help me review them. And he would tell me nine times out of 10, this is not a case, not a case, not a case. But when there was a case, he was very supportive. And he, was, he felt like I was helping to make medicine better by policing the medical community because they won't do it themselves. As we all know, they look after themselves. They do not put patient care as their priority when it comes to being criticized. So that's kind of how I got into it. I did not expect to be focusing my career on medical malpractice. That's I started off a pretty traditional practice back in 99. I was doing what they call threshold law, which means taking any case that crosses the threshold. I was doing divorce cases. I was doing uh, personal injury cases when I could get them, real estate disputes, title insurance disputes, all kinds of things. But the focus was court. I always wanted to be in the courtroom and take on cases that had that potential. And then like anything, you start getting some success and then people trust you with bigger and bigger cases, cases they don't think are winnable. That's why they don't want to handle them themselves. And then you, you know, fortunately we had some good results early with some substantial medical cases and that opened the door up and got more and more cases. And then I became full-time medical malpractice lawyer and never looked back. And big falls. And big falls. Well, you kind of joke, but it's true. I've got a close friend here in Atlanta who's probably the biggest student of trial work I've known, Bruce Berger, dear friend goes to more seminars than anybody I've ever met. And he will invite me in on his biggest fall down cases, usually wrongful death or catastrophic injury. And we've had a lot of success and a lot of fun. Right. So medical malpractice and big falls. That's That's where we call Lloyd Bell. That's quite a niche. It's definitely a niche. Yeah. So let me ask you, though, because your dad was a doctor, but tell us a little bit more about your upbringing so we get a better idea of who you are. Yeah. I'm the youngest of five kids. I grew up in Atlanta. We had my parents had all five of us within six years, so we were packed in tightly like sardines in a small house in Atlanta and shared a room with my brother my whole life, or at least till he went off to college. And I used to joke that you have to be part of a big family to uh, develop the trial skills of survival, resilience, emotional toughness. Abuse. Abuse. <laughs> that's, a, that's a word for it. As my, in my family, if you said something, you stepped out even a little bit and said something that was capable of being ridiculed, my siblings would, particularly my brothers, would jump on me like a pack of hyenas. So you had to uh, learn to be able to articulate your position and fire off the insult when necessary and just sort of build up a a verbal arsenal. So that's kind of my upbringing. It was a tough upbringing. My dad, my, my parents were World War II generation. My dad was actually in World War II. So I was essentially being raised by grandparents, you know, the, all my peers, parents, you know, were in different generations. So I had older parents, more traditional in a lot of ways, and kind of a tough environment. My dad was a tough surgeon. And this was the old school surgeon where he would wear a suit to the hospital every day. People would stand at attention when he'd walk into the operating room. And he wanted to bring that rigidity and that structure back to the house. I did not take very well to that type of structure. 
So there was a lot of uh, tumult in my household coming along and a lot of challenges as a kid. Um, one of the biggest challenges with my brother, Nolan, who I was very close to, got cancer when he was in high school, got leukemia. That was almost the destruction of the family because of all the stress and the anxiety and the sorrow. And he survived it. He suffered through three years of chemotherapy, but he got it behind him. He did not fully disclose his health history when he enlisted in the Army. He always wanted to go in the Army. And I looked up to him, and I, I went to the Army later myself. But he went in the Army, lied about his health history. He had scars where he'd had cancer surgeries to have things removed. They asked him about them. He said they were scratches from barbed wire because he, you know, we had a little farm outside of Atlanta. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy stuff. So that was a big sort of a moment coming along was seeing somebody that you cared about suffering horribly, lost all his hair, lost weight. It was real touch and go whether he'd survive. And he did. He went in the army, was successful. I used to joke that he was kind of the Forrest Gump of my family because he went to every country you could imagine, had all worked on a fishing boat off Alaska, taught English in China and South Korea, went through Russia backpacking, you know, back when it was you know, not very hospitable, <laughs> crazy. So really interesting guy. But he got touched by medical malpractice later. He was in Afghanistan and Iraq and was complaining because he was exposed to all this toxic chemicals from those burn pits that are getting a lot of attention in the news. And he came home after his last tour, was coughing, couldn't shake it, kept going to the VA. VA's like, oh, it's allergies. It's just irritation, no big deal. Wouldn't do a CT scan of his chest for over a year. And finally, we got involved, in, I say we, my father and I, and started putting more pressure, like he's got to be get a scan. And when they did, his chest lit up like a Christmas tree. He was full of cancerous nodes throughout both lungs. And he had stage four cancer. And they told him he had six months. At that time, he was 47 years old, 48 years old. It was just pure malpractice. But we looked at it. At that time, you couldn't make a claim against the government if you were a service member for medical malpractice. That's changed a little bit. It's a topic of an, probably another podcast. But you know, nobody's immune to it. My father's a doctor. I'm a medical malpractice lawyer. And medical malpractice hit my family. And my brother died six months afterwards. I try to remember that when I'm dealing with clients and their stories and trying to understand kind of what the family is experiencing, because it's not just the person who's suffering, of course, it's everybody that cares about that person. So this is sort of my story of how I got involved in medical malpractice and why I'm so passionate about it. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know you're the youngest of a decent sized family because I'm the youngest of eight. My dad was like, I think he was 45 or 50 when they had me and he was in the military too. But I did not go. I can't imagine, like, I just can't imagine serving time. I mean, you know, serving in the military. The military never would have been the same if you had uh, joined. Yeah. All right. And it might have, I don't know, it might have changed me. <laughs> I don't know. I could have stayed strong and kept my resilience, but it probably would have had a big effect on my life. You never know. It's your journey. But yeah, because being the youngest of a bigger family is, and sharing a room, I didn't have to share a room with anybody because it was three boys, four girls, and me. So obviously that could put me sharing a room with a girl. So at least I had my own room. So that was a good start for me. That's a big deal. Tell us about serving in the army because that's an experience. It is. I joke that um, Memorial Day or Veterans Day, people will say, well, thank you for your service. And I'm always a little uncomfortable with that because my service was wonderful and it was peaceful for the most part, you know, as compared to the service of people who've been in since 9-11 who've deployed overseas, done some true hardship tours. 
my hardship tours weren't that hard. I was stationed. I started off at Fort Benning, Georgia, which is a, well, it used to be Fort Benning, Georgia. They've renamed it. I can't recall the new name, but it's the home of the infantry. And that's where I first got my experience with trial work because I was a, a, what they call a trial council. I was assigned to the 75th Ranger Regiment and several other combat units. And my responsibility was to go out in the field with them, get to know the command. And then if somebody got in trouble, I would be responsible for prosecuting them or what they call chaptering them out of the army. But I got to try a lot of cases quickly. The military JAG Corps is sort of like the DA's office. If you are young and enthusiastic and want to take on a lot of responsibility, the senior command is happy to let you do it because it's a lot of work. And I was all those things and I was excited to try big cases. So I got in the courtroom quickly, got to do some fun things like go to airborne school. I got my jump wings, went to air assault school, which was uh, actually harder, I thought, which is when you learn how to jump out of helicopters and do helicopter airborne air assault operations. That was a lot of fun. So I got to sort of do the military things I like to do, but I also got to practice law and try cases. And that was a great experience. And then I went out to Seattle, Washington area. I was stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington, where I was a um, defense counsel. In the Army, they do a, they have a policy that you have to start, at least they did, you have to start off as a prosecutor to learn what you need to learn before becoming a criminal defense lawyer. I did defense work for my last two years or so in the Army, and that was a great experience. Tried cases all over the country. I had a major case down in Haiti. Uh, we were involved in an operation called Operation Restore Democracy, and I represented a soldier who had gotten in trouble, we shall say, and accused of a bunch of bad things in Haiti. So I spent time in Port-au-Prince and traveling with the MPs, looking for witnesses, and had an incredible experience down there developing a case in a very unfamiliar country with a lot of chaos, different language, security concerns, all those types of things. Experiences you're just not going to get if you stay local and don't put yourself in that situation, but great experience. Well, it sounds pretty great. And it takes a lot of life experiences, I think, to really become a great trial lawyer. Because the thing that's fascinating about trial lawyering is that there's really no agreement. I could ask 10 trial lawyers, what do you think the qualities or skills of a great trial lawyer are? And I know I'd get 10 very different answers, which makes it the challenge is to you know build programs and workshops, whatever, to help people become great trial lawyers since there's no agreement on what's the skill set, right? So let me ask you, what do you think, let's say the three or four key ingredients, qualities, character traits of, because you know a lot of winning trial lawyers, right? I mean, because you're in the, the inner circle of advocates, which is, I mean, I'd only heard of it before. I didn't really know anybody in it before the pandemic. But now, of course, I know tons of people in the inner circle. I mean, you, Galipo, Panish, a lot more than that. A lot of them are coming to New York City when we talk about that in a bit. But let me ask you, like, what would you say the top qualities are for champion trial lawyers? You have to have an enthusiasm and a love for trying cases. You can't do it. You can't review, look at it like a job or an income stream or something that you just do to make a living. It's got to, the, the lines dissolve between who you are as a person and your career. And that can be good and bad. And that can interfere with marriages and relationships because I think the great trial lawyers, there's no division between who they are in the regular life and who they are in court 
in, as a trial lawyer. It's, it's an identity. It's a fusion or a melding your career with your identity. And like I say, that can be dangerous to relationships if people don't understand that. You'll get accused of being a workaholic. All you do is think about work. And there are a lot of- Your clients are more important than me. Than your clients are more important than me. I've heard, heard all these types of things. And kind of gets into your head a little bit because you're wondering, you know, is this healthy to be thinking about work and thinking about cases and thinking about, you know, when you're reading a book, I do a lot of reading and I'll read. And then if something strikes me as a memorable quote, my first thought is this, where can I fit this into a case or how can I fit this into a closing argument? So I think the people who are the most successful at any profession are people who are passionate about it and live it and breathe it and care. That's true. And I'm sure that's true in professional sports, true in any career politicians, real estate agents, whatever it is. It's very true in trial work. So that's number one. You've got to have the passion and the love and the commitment. And then number two, I think obviously you have to have the intelligence because it's a lot of, you've got to organize a lot of information. You've got to balance a lot. And I agree with this, that it's similar to the skill set of a successful emergency room physician. You have to have the ability to quickly move from one topic to another and then move back again and move over here, move over there. Some people just don't aren't equipped for that approach. They have a linear approach. They have a project. They got to go from A to Z, then they can move on to the next project. You have to be a little, I don't want to say schizophrenic, but you have to be adaptable and flexible and be able to quickly give your attention fully to different topics and then move around quickly. So I think that's an important quality. And then from there, you've got to have the work ethic. You know, there no, there's no such thing as a successful, lazy trial lawyer because it's, it's hard work. The fun stuff is the 1%, the 2%, which is the trials and the trial-related activities. But there's just a lot of hard work before you get to that point. And you know, trials, the payoff for the diligence and the hard work and the preparation and the infrastructure and all those things. And then the, if you put the right foundation in place, the trial is the payoff. But those are the ones that come to mind that you'll see just across the board with successful trial lawyers. Yeah. People have no idea how hard the work is. Like I honestly had no idea how hard the work is until I started getting some more involved with different friends of mine. Like these two really good friends of mine, Mohammed Ahmad and Ray Kermani, just finished a trial yesterday on a, an electrocution case. They've been working out for four years, probably had a million dollars of their own money in. And I was with them for a lot of it. And just like the grinding work, every deposition, you know, these all these experts and all this technical stuff. And just watching them do it all, I'm just like, wow, really hard work and really focus and commitment for the long term. So, and you know, but it paid off because they got a $51 million verdict yesterday. That's and the fantastic. county has never seen an eight figure verdict before. It's like 42 million higher than it's ever been up in Monterey, California. And, and I couldn't be happier for them because they're such great guys. I mean, and they were, they eat, breathe, and slept it all. And, you know, so it's such an important thing to be able to do. And the melding, you say, it's like, it's like Trowler's University is like my alter ego. You know what I mean? It's like you got to into it all the time. You know what I mean? It's like you can't stop it. And you got to have people around you that understand it. Like I had a great girlfriend. She totally understands it. Like this is it. It's like if you don't like the program, this is the program. This is you know what I mean. It's like and then if somebody gives you a, you know, makes you feel bad about your commitment to it, it's really hard to really be successful then because then you're torn. I think that's exactly right. I do want to make this point though, because I think it's an important one, particularly you know, younger lawyers who are coming up and trying to find their voice and their path is that you have to have some element of 
I don't want to say sociopathy because that's the wrong word. You have to have some element of not carrying the burden of every one of your clients because no matter how accomplished you are, how hard you work, how diligent you work, all those things, you're still going to come in second occasionally. That's just the way it is. You don't know who's going to show up on your jury. You don't know how things are going to hit your jury on a given day. Right. So there has to be an element of capacity to forgive yourself and to recognize that it is not a personal reflection on you necessarily if you lose. And if you are not able to get the result for your client that you want, some people get paralyzed with that. I've known lawyers who have literally given up their trial careers because they couldn't live what they felt as guilt for not accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish. And just like every oncologist is not going to save every cancer victim, every surgeon is not going to save every patient, every trial lawyer is not going to achieve the result they want in every case. So you have to have a high level of resilience in this practice. And I've lost cases and it is the worst feeling in the world. You, it feels so personal. It feels like a personal rejection. It's like, how do you not believe me? How do you not see it the way I see it? How do you not care about my client the way I care about? And you have a period of grieving when you lose a case. It's like the death of a loved one in a way. And you, you grieve, but then you get a certain number of days to grieve, and then you have to put it away. You have to move forward or you won't be able to help anybody else. So uh, those are hard lessons to learn. I'm not sure you can learn them until you've experienced them, but I just want to put that out there for folks listening that um, you have to have that level of resilience and ability to forgive yourself. That, because I used to try a lot of criminal cases and I would lose a criminal case for somebody I thought was innocent and see them handcuffed and walked into an extended double digit prison term. Can't sleep for months. And it's either like the last case that I lost. I was like, I got three choices. One, I got it. One, I could quit. Two, I could jump off a bridge because I feel so guilty. Or three, I could learn from it and try to make sure and help others that this tragedy that I'm experiencing doesn't happen for them. That's all I can do. I think that's absolutely the right approach. And let's take a quick story. This was probably the lowest point of my legal career. I represented a wonderful guy named Michael Bogles. And Mike was giving blood, and the phlebotomist medical assistant who was taking his blood went in at the wrong angle with the needle and then pierced one of the nerves in his arm and set up this pain condition called complex regional pain syndrome. And this is one of the first medical malpractice cases I was involved in. Invisible injury, he looked fine on the outside, but he had this horrible pain condition. He was getting treated at one of the great hospitals here in Georgia, Shepherd Center, and uh, was really suffering and he was married and his marriage was being affected and his kids were affected and just a really sad story. So we take the case, we go to trial and it's a hard fought trial, tried it with a good friend of mine, Nelson Tyrone, and we got a great verdict. We got a five and a half million dollar verdict just on top of the world. Well, the judge took the entire verdict away from us for different reasons and granted the defense a new trial, a completely new trial. And we couldn't get the case settled. So we went back for a second trial and trying a case the second time is not easy. And the defense has seen your best case. They've adjusted and it's just very challenging. And we came in second. We got a defense verdict in the second trial. And I remember being in court and my client sobbing when the verdict was read out. I put my arm around him. I could just feel his body convulsing. 
and the courtroom cleared out. Judge, jury, everybody cleared out. And, you know, if it was a Hollywood movie, the camera would have pulled back and you would have just seen the two of us at the table alone in the courtroom. And I was never felt as low. I felt I had let him down and questioned every decision I made in the case. Well, we appealed it and no success on appeal. That was the end of the road, you know, four-year adventure, not anything in my mind to show for it, not a penny to show for it. Well, um, after that happened, Mike decides that he's not going to let it beat him. So he goes back to grad, back to school, gets his degree, starts coaching wrestling for children with disabilities, special needs kids, and finds his passion. And he goes on to get his master's degree. And I saw Mike, he came to uh, my brother's funeral, which was in Eastern Georgia near Augusta. And he shows up and he's got, he's just a big garrulous guy, you know, big college wrestler background, long hair on his shoulders. And he comes up to me and just gives me a big old hug. And I thanked him for being there. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, I wouldn't have missed it. And he turns to my family who was there and he says to them, he goes, Lloyd saved my life. And I'm just like, this first time I've heard this, I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, yeah. He goes, he showed me that he was willing to fight for me. And even though we didn't get any money, he goes, I was motivated to get my life back together. But having him believe in me and work that hard for me just made me feel like I need to do something more. And Mike and I have stayed in touch. Uh, we're having dinner together in two weeks. We've got on the calendar. And it just, just warms my heart talking about him because he's such a great guy. So even if you don't necessarily get the plaintiff's verdict, just showing you care and working hard carries so much impact in people's lives. Yes, true that. My dad used to, when he drove me to school, I said I went to private schools my whole life. So my dad had to drive me because there was no busing service, right? Because I had to go to Catholic schools. But he'd always make me uh, memorize these positive affirmations. I remember one of them was within every, I didn't even know what these words meant at the time, right? I'm like eight years old, seven, within every adversity, there's a seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. And it's like, the adversity of COVID. With no COVID, there, we wouldn't be sitting here right now, right? Right. But it's just like shit happens. It just and it keeps happening. And then we can't control the wind. We can only control our sails. You reminded me of a thought I wanted to put out there too, because the opportunities that present themselves, you got to always have your. In order to be a good trial lawyer, you have to always be alert to opportunities, and even something that looks an obstacle, you've got to be looking for ways to get around it. And you did that with Trial Lawyers University. I mean, COVID. The world shut down, legal world shut down, courthouses are closed, but you realize people would be around their screens. You got to be familiar with Zoom like we all were. And then that became sort of the seed for your enterprise with Trial Lawyers University was, well, we got a captive audience now. Nobody's going to court. <laughs> might, might as well do something positive. You know, that was pretty inspired because I don't think anybody else was doing that, at least not to the same degree, level of organization. But trial lawyers have to do that too. And we hit a wall or the defense brings up a a new argument or a new expert, the first reaction should not be, oh, we're doomed in pessimism. You've got to have optimism and say, okay, what's the opportunity here? How can we use this to our advantage? My friend, Joe Freed, been friends a long time, Georgia lawyer, he likes to say, how can I use the defense's best fact and make it my best fact or best argument? You can't always do it, but it's uh, the right mindset, looking for the opportunities, looking for the angles, looking for the places to advance, even if you have to go sideways a little bit before you can move forward. It's funny. I just got the phone with Joe right before we started this. And uh, he's coming to New York too. He's such a great guy and a great teacher too. There's some people that are great trial lawyers, but aren't shit for teachers. And 
They just aren't. It's just like, they just don't have it in them. I mean, it's a totally different skill set. And I mean, they're very similar because you have to be a great teacher to be a great trial lawyer, but you're just teaching something different. And you really got to be vested in the people that are your students and making them great and not just letting them think you're great, right? Right. I mean, it has to be about actually changing them and not just their perception of you, which are fine lines in it all, but still. But Joe is both a great trial lawyer and a great teacher and great human being. No question about it. We've got some, we got some good trial lawyers here in Georgia, and he's one of the top. Yeah. Been a good friend for a long time. Yeah, you really do. Besides, you know, we talked about qualities of great trial lawyers. And I know you're a person that's really worked on your craft. I mean, you spent three weeks at the Trial Lawyers College back when it was on the ranch in Du Bois. Now it's at some YMCA camp in Colorado or somewhere. So I'm sure it's a very different experience. I know for sure the food's a different experience. I heard of people last year and they lost 20 pounds in those 30 days. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been to that YMCA camp in Estes Park, where the, well, wherever they had it last year. And I'm like, all I remember was cafeteria food that was truly what cafeteria food is and just like well you're not going for the food it's not a foodie experience ambrose you're going for the well it is at the ranch the food was good it eventually got good and wow i remember after the first trialers university in 2021 joe freed called me up he's like you gotta have great food ambrose you can't not feed people i'm like joe do you know how much that costs he's like i don't actually care i'm just telling you I'm just, you told me you want to make your bragging better i'm telling you what you need to do I didn't tell you how to find the money. That's up to you. You know what I mean? To feed everybody. Napoleon was the one who said that an army travels on its stomach. So there's some truth to that. See, it's historical. It's been proven. Still, so you went to the ranch for three weeks. Obviously, you didn't go there for the spiritual experience. You went there to learn to become a better trial lawyer. Sure. And if anybody goes there, it's like I you know, spend a lot of time there. I have a different philosophy than they do. And I know that works for a lot of people, whatever it is. But like, tell us, like, what do you think? the skills, the key skills for somebody who wants to become a great trial lawyer, for them to work on and master if they want to get to the top of this game? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I look at being a trial lawyer as sort of like being a chef and you're cooking a, a stew and you decide what ingredients go in. You have to experiment a lot to figure out what works for you because you can't imitate somebody. You, know, you can't you know, pretend to be Joey Lowe or Jerry Spence or Dan Ambrose or Panish. Actually, I think pretending to be Dan Ambrose is not a bad idea, but <laughs> go on. Don't try to be them. But anyways, go on. Nobody in the South can talk as fast as you, so it'd be hard to imitate. But, <laughs> but yeah, you got to be yourself. But that sounds nice and trite. But what is yourself? Who are you as a trial lawyer? So I know this is a view that my friend Berger and I share is that we have to expose ourselves to as much education, to as many experiences as possible. Trial Lawyers College was one experience for me. I, I spent time with working with Rodney Jew, a trial consultant out in Napa, who's excellent. Phil Miller, who helped develop the Rodney, so-called Rodney Jew method out of Tennessee. I've worked with Philip. So you have to be a student. A lifetime of learning is how my friend Berger likes to say it. And I agree with that. So you have to be a student, figure out what works for you, what doesn't. You mentioned you were involved in TLC for a long time, Trial Lawyers College, and some of that connects with you, some of it doesn't. Some people go all in. They, that is the prism in which they view their trial practice. Reptile is another sort of approach. And there are many of them. In fact, this is probably the golden age of being a trial lawyer because there are so many people teaching and sharing generously all over the country. Roger Dodd down in Florida. I mean, just example after example. There's so many great lawyers who are willing to share. Now, let's don't gild the lily too much. I mean, there's an advantage in taking the time to share. There are a lot of advantages. I enjoy doing it because it slows me down, takes me off the calendar for my trial preparation and, and case preparation. 
it makes me think in a way that I wouldn't otherwise. It makes me stop and sort of do an assessment. You know, what do I want to talk about? What's important? What do I think about this, that, or the other? So there's an advantage to the people teaching these trial skills. But yeah, I just think it's a, you get these ingredients from all the different sources. You figure out what works. You figure out the pieces that Keith Mitnick might offer or Brian Panish or whoever, and you put it together into your stew because you can't make somebody else's stew. It has to be your own. And you put the ingredients in that work for you. But you're always changing the recipe a little bit because you might learn something new. You're always learning something new. I put a lot of emphasis for into the use of technology. And I've spoken a lot about technologies, you know, use of trial technology, presentation softwares, or software, different types of apps that help teach to juries. Well, that's a constantly evolving area. So I have to pay attention to new applications that are coming out and try to do things better. I know you're a big proponent of this. How do I get better? How do I get better? Because as soon as you think you've crossed the finish line and you've got it figured out and you understand it, you will get knocked on your ass every time. You always have to stay humble, intentionally humble, not pretending to be humble so that you seem more likable and less arrogant, but you have to tell yourself you are only as good as your last trial. And the next 12 people that are going to meet you, they're not going to be impressed with your track record. They're probably not even going to know who you are, but they're going to be listening to you and judging you and judging the job you're doing in that moment. You want to put yourself in the best position to be successful in that moment. And you have to stay humble and have to recognize that every trial is its own unique experience. And you can't just rest on your laurels and hope everybody just thinks you're awesome and give you a big verdict because it won't happen. Well, so the skill that is, because like skills that I know that you have are like that you really work on is your use of like demonstratives in the courtroom, right? Right. I mean, that's something that you really focus on. So that's, I say, is a skill. But what your answer, with all due respect, is more of like a mindset of being a consummate student. Fair enough. Which is more of a personality trait of, yeah. and it's like, you're right. I remember when I used to, was a criminal defense lawyer, I finally got figured out, then I get my client get convicted. I'm like, what the? And then it's like, after that happens once or twice, you're like, then a verdict is just more of a relief than it is a reason to joy. It's like, ah, oh, survived another one. Thank God I don't have to live with this, the guilt of failing somebody. But your use of demonstratives, I know you work, you'd be creative and stuff like that. So, but what, you know, like that, I consider to be a skill or. Yeah, I see the distinction you're making. You're right. Because, I mean, the, you know, the skills, how to do an, a proper cross-examination. Right. How to take a good deposition, what questions not to ask. There's so many actual skills that go into being an effective trial lawyer. You have to have that foundation. You have to understand how to get evidence in. I mean, that's, those are the very, very basic. You can't go to the next level creatively if you don't have that muscle memory for those basic skills. I mean, not necessarily just the legal skills, but the presentation skills. I know this is something you work with a lot of people on in your workshops. How do you when you're putting up a document on a on a big monitor, how do you stand? I mean, this is something I learned from you, and it's I think it's exactly right that when you put up a big document, you turn your you the presenter turn your attention to the document as well. If you want the jury to turn their attention to the screen, you don't look at the jury while they're looking at the screen, which is the way I used to do it. And honestly, so many of the great trialers do it that way. It just blows my mind. I'm like, or they're looking at the screen at the floor while they're talking to the jury. And the screen's behind them. It's like, how does the jury know where to focus? I mean, that's crazy. But those are skills that are important and that you just, you're not born knowing that. You know, those are types of things that you can learn 
and they seem like smaller things, but they're very important because they, you know, you create an environment for learning by the jury. I had a trial we'll talk about, I think you want to talk about it a little bit later. We got a good result about a month and a half ago. And one of the demonstratives I had was a 3D printed fibula, which is the small bone in your lower leg. And I found a website that'll create anatomically perfect little models of the bone. And I was practicing opening statement. We'll talk about practice in a little while. That's important. I was practicing opening statement with my team. And I found myself using this fibula bone as a pointer, (laughs) you know, just sort of instinctive. I like used it as I was talking about it. Then I would point to things on the screen with it. And the audience was aghast. They're like, you can't be pointing like Fred Flintstone with a bone pointing to the screen. You have to treat this model you have to treat it in a different way because it's a part of human anatomy that's representing the injury to your client. So that was something that I got good feedback on from my team and I was kind of embarrassed and I realized, yeah, that's not so great to be using a bone as a pointer. These skills come up important ways. Right, we talked about practice. Yeah. There's so many lawyers I know that don't want to practice their opening statements before standing in front of a jury or practice their voir dire before standing in jury because like, I want it to be authentic and fresh. I'm like, yeah. okay. Right. It's not because you're lazy and don't want to put the effort or don't want to get the feedback because it may not be perfect and you just don't want to hear that because it's going to affect your mojo. So tell us about your philosophy on practicing and getting ready for these trials. I get that instinct, that idea that the first time I want to do it is in front of the jury and it's going to be magical. That's just ridiculous. If anybody who's listening has that instinct, put it in a box and throw it out in the (laughs) ocean somewhere because it's not true. Performers, the greatest performers in the world, screen, stage, you name it, Meryl Streep, uh, Lawrence Olivier, all the great performers, they practice, practice, practice. I mean, that's the key is practice because practice gives you the freedom to be in the moment and be authentic because you're not thinking about your lines. You're not thinking about your blocking, you know, where you need to stand. Talking about some great influences in my life, uh, Jesse Wilson is another one who comes up through an acting background and works a lot with trial lawyers on their skills and their performance skills. And practice is incredibly important because it gives you the freedom to be spontaneous. If you practice, 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 then the moments where you're performing, you have the freedom to express yourself a little bit differently. But practice is important. But I get it. It's a little scary because you feel very judged. I feel as nervous standing up in front of my conference room full of my lawyers and staff and other people that share space here. And they'll come and watch. And my heart will be pounding. And I mean, I'll feel it. But that's a good feeling. It means you care. It means you're engaged. And the practice is very important because you want to be able to adjust. And so much of it is not just you and your voice and eye contact and all those things, but it's the content you need to practice. You need to practice the right intonation when you're making a specific point. You need to practice pausing, something I'm not very good at, to create so-called white space and space for the audience to process information. And there's drama in pausing. And movement is important. And you pause in one area and let jury process, and then you move to a different part, physically move to a different part of the quote stage to present your next chapter, your next area that you want to discuss. So yeah, just to, I'm kind of rambling, but yes, practice is critical, not just on opening or closing argument, but also jury selection. I think practice is important for different reasons in jury selection, which is I think that's the personal work that you're doing so that you are present, you are engaged, and you're not just full of anxiety 
about being liked and making, you know, trying to find the best jury. But the practice kind of, it's just like a warm up before a race. You know, you're not practicing the words you're going to say because you don't know what your words are going to be necessarily. You know what your questions are, but you don't know what your feedback is necessarily going to be from the jury. So that's more spontaneous than maybe opening statement. But the principle of getting that work, that exercise, exercising those muscles is very important. Do you practice your actual voir dire that you plan to run in the trial with your focus group before your opening statement? Absolutely. And I think that's so critical because people are like, well, how do you know what the jury's going to say? I'm like, because they're human beings. It's just like you say good morning to somebody. They're most likely to say good morning back to you and not F off, right? And so things that I help people is like practicing having a warm face as opposed to, you know, so many lawyers I see like say good morning, everybody. And they have like a serious face or they say thank you. Instead of like, who says thank you like that when they actually mean it? You say thank you to somebody, your face is warm in normal life. But in a courtroom, you see it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. It's like such horseshit. It's, like, it's so incongruent. Like the whole practice thing. I consider like voir to be so much like a stand-up comedian. Like you've got your materials, your set pieces, how you want to frame the question on damages, how you want to frame the question on whatever, holding doctors responsible for when they screw up and don't do their job. However, you have to set the frame correctly in order to guide the conversation that follows, right? Like a stand-up comedian, as opposed to an actor, an actor just has to be present with themselves and their other actors. They don't have to worry about the audience, right? But a stand-up comedian is constantly having their set stuff, but constantly bringing the audience in because it's about the connection with the audience and being able to have your set materials, but be fluid and flexible to roll with the reactions of the audience to be, quote, present. And any great stand-up comedian, like who was one of the greatest? Jerry Seinfeld, right? So when he'd have his new materials, and, he, and I read about all this stuff because I read about peak performance, but they always go to these small venues, like 50 people, try out their new materials, do it over and over, do you know, 30, 40 shows before they start going to the 20, 30,000 seat auditoriums. So they got their stick refined. So then they got comfort, they got confidence, they know that line's gonna land. That's the same thing as being a trial lawyer, practicing, being prepared, but also the same with the cross. Like you have your questions, but you don't know what the answer is. It's gonna create, if you're not present and relaxed, there's new opportunities, you're gonna miss them because you're focused on the next question. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And the jury is also, judging and evaluating you, the speaker. And this is the first interaction you're having with the jury. So they're seeing how you respond to other people and the level of respect you you treat the other panel members. I tried a case years and years ago. It was a car wreck case. Lawyer had asked me to come in and help him. And he wanted to do jury selection, which is fine. Yeah, it was his case. The way you that was fine. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, I typically try to, and brought it in a case, I I want to do jury selection and opening statement. I think those two things go together very well. But anyway, he did the jury selection. And he asked a pretty typical question. He said, has anybody ever uh, been close to somebody who's been in a serious motor vehicle wreck? And this young guy raised his hand and my friend called on him. And the uh, panel member said, yeah, he goes, well, I was uh, stationed in Iraq and we got hit with a roadside bomb. And I lost about eight friends, got killed in that, in that uh, explosion. So that's what, so yes. And then my friend, my co-counsel immediately said, okay, anybody else? Anybody else ever had a, had a, <laughs> a wreck? And my friend, Jim is a great guy, a very compassionate guy, but just didn't listen to the answer. Just didn't hear it. Well, what he should have done is he should have just stopped talking for a moment and just let what this young person just said kind of sit for a moment and then just say, I'm very sorry. 
what you've experienced. Really sorry for your loss. Not dwell on it, not stir it up, but just right. honor it. Just honor the answer, as Eric Oliver likes to say. Just honor the answer. And then, as a human being would, keep going forward. you got a job to do. But that's the kind of thing that you, if you're in your head and you're not engaged, you're not intentionally listening, but it's hard to do that because you're in a, in a room full of people staring at you and you feel all this pressure when you get one-on-one with one of the panel members, it's real easy to get pulled in and your head and your next question and what are people thinking about me and how much time do I have? And you know, the judge <laughs> is breathing down my neck. So practice is a good way to be better prepared for those kind of moments. And to calm the mind. Calm the mind. Presence is really a combination of preparation and confidence. That's right. Your confidence when you're prepared, your confidence when you, what you're about to do, you've done before and it's predictable and you're, you're excited to be there. You're not nervous. You know what I mean? Like when you cross that threshold from nervousness to excitement and where you actually feel like you're drawing energy from the group that you're in front of and you're part of that group, that's connection slash, and you have to experience it, right? Yeah. And you know, when you're connecting, we know when you're not, but that's what I call like kind of magic of the connection happens. Let's talk about New York City. Yeah. Because this is Travelers University's first endeavor on the East Coast. It's, it's a big place. I remember going there about 10 years ago with a buddy of mine who I used to teach Trojan Horse with. And I looked up and I was like, one day, I'm going to own this town. He's like, okay, keep smoking crack, Ambrose. <laughs> that was a long, long time ago. But, and, you know, we're still a ways off, but this is our first opportunity to at least have a little footprint, a little thumbprint in the town. And, you know, I've worked hard to put together the greatest lineup of trial lawyer talent and with a lot more East Coast representation because people are always like, oh, you've never been from the East Coast. But this time, we got a lot of people from a lot of the great trial lawyers from New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia coming. I'm sure you know, like Evan Torgan, Judy Livingston, Bob, I think it's Mongaluzzi from Philadelphia, Jeff Couric, he's from New York, Ben Morelli from New York. Yeah. So. Obviously, you're East Coast. I mean, you're a lot closer to the East Coast than you are the West Coast. You know, we got you, Preet, Camerlingo's coming, Romano, Sagisha Ked. I mean, we just got like, I consider it's like a, it's a gangster quad, a squad of trial lawyers. But you're coming, which is really exciting. And tell us, what are you going to be teaching in New York City? Yeah, I'm really excited about this, Dan. This is going to be a two-day medical malpractice track. Can be a total of 12 hours of instruction, uh, six hours per day. We're still putting together the final syllabus, but the focus is going to be on the foundations of a successful medical malpractice trial. There'll be a lot of overlap with other serious injury cases. It's, it's framed as a medical malpractice track because that'll be the emphasis, but there'll be a lot of information that'll translate into all types of cases from dealing with medical experts, cross examinations depositions. But one thing we're going to do that I have not done before, and I'm doing this against counsel of some of my peers who think I'm sharing too much and I should keep some uh, special sauce to myself, is we are going to talk much more about the process of our paperwork, our pleadings, our complaints, our discovery. We're going to talk about audit trails and the sort of the foundational underpinnings that give us the best chance of success at trial. So I'm going to have a lot of examples of work product. We're going to share expert affidavits like you've never seen before. We put a lot of our complaints, our lawsuits on the website, my Bell Law Firm website already. We're going to talk about the process of developing those, um, how to develop a medical library 
that you can search across hundreds or thousands of texts to help develop the medical principles you need for your cases. So the foundation is a piece that I have not gone into in as great a depth before we're going to address in New York. And then, of course, we are going to talk about the basic skills that lead to successful outcomes, how to take a adverse expert at trial. How do you prepare that? How do you prepare the literature you're going to need for cross-examination? Where do you find the literature? How do you use the literature? Very important skill set. Then we're going to talk about the unique aspects of opening statement medical malpractice. We're going to talk about closing arguments, how to structure them. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the so-called softer skills, some of the things we've been talking about today about how to present most effectively and present yourself most effectively to a jury. So it's going to be a soup to nuts medical malpractice symposium from intake to verdict. I think it's going to be very valuable to people who focus on medical malpractice, but anybody who's handling large catastrophic or wrongful death cases, I think we'll find a lot of value in this track. I'm personally very excited about it because through this process of trial lawyers university has given me the opportunity to identify people who are not just great trial lawyers, but also great teachers and disseminators of information. And obviously I put you in that category or, you know, I wouldn't have asked you to do this, right? Because if we're not creating real value, it's just a waste of time. I personally am really excited about this because it can influence and help so many people. I just got an email. I talked to a lawyer yesterday or I talked to her this morning for a while, Lauren Byrne, and she told me how much you helped her. She finally got her first seven-figure verdict in Virginia on a really crazy obstetrics case. It was just a pain case. There was no permanent injuries. Six or seven hours without anesthesia or something like that, doing a C-section, getting a two and a half million dollar verdict. But like when you break through, I think as a trial lawyer and you find your voice, you find that belief in yourself. And that belief just it comes from verdicts. I mean, I hate to be shallow about it, but if you don't get verdicts, how are you going to believe? Because nobody believes you. And just like hearing these people's stories and how much did that your lectures and presentations in Vegas last year helped her get to where she got to. It's just really exciting. Really exciting. That's great to hear. And she emailed me and told me about the result. And that is not an easy venue. She's in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is a very conservative part of the state. It's towards the mountains, western part of uh, Virginia. Just an amazing result. I love to hear that some of the things we've been talking about have translated into results because that's the whole name of the game. We're all trying to help each other, ultimately help clients get the results that they deserve. And there's a lot of forces at play to try to push back against us and you know, tort reformers trying to take away rights to a civil jury trial. And we all have to help each other. That's one of the things I love about this practice area is that we're so collaborative. I get calls all the time and I'll call people and say, hey, do you have a motion on this that you can share? Or do you have experience with this judge? What can you share about the judge? And you don't get that level of engagement and collaboration on the defense side. They're much more competitive with each other in terms of protecting information and hoarding details. And I love the fact that we're as collaborative as we are and we all try to all try to help each other. Well, let's talk about you recently had to miss my flagship program in Huntington Beach, California. <laughs> that I was most proud of. I just want to say for the record, I thought it was our best event as far as many different areas. I only judge myself in three areas for my participants is did you learn a ton? Did you make a lot of new friends slash build your network? And did you have a lot of fun? And I think everybody that I talked to did really high up on those things. So we had a theme party every night. We had four tracks of the great trialers, lectures, plus seven workshops. Yeah, I mean, obviously networking is my strength. So I try to bring my strength of what I have to 
other people to make their communities bigger. So, you know, everybody did a personal bio and we had pregame the night before. So everybody got to know each other. A lot of people that were there early got to know each other. So it was really great. You had to miss this. I think it was for a legitimate reason. It was. Usually we get upset with our speakers that cancel on us and we don't reinvite them, but we made a exception for you. And it's a good thing you won that case or it would have not been in such a good miss. But tell us about that case. I did not cancel on you. I attended remotely. You were nice enough to make that happen for me. I appreciate it because I, I really was disappointed not to be able to be out there, but you got to uh, got to follow the trial calendars. So this was a case involved, it's a challenging case. It was involving a woman who broke the bone in her foot called, or her leg called the fibula, small bone in the lower leg. She fell on her roof, patching a hole, didn't fall off the roof, but she fell on the roof, leg got caught up underneath her and she broke her leg. Well, she goes to uh, this podiatrist and the podiatrist recommends a plating surgery called an ORIF, where they basically put a piece of metal with screws over the bone. And when he went in to do the surgery, he cut one of the major nerves in her lower leg called the superficial perineal nerve. And he didn't know he did it at the time, apparently, sews her up. And over the next few weeks and months, she starts developing worse and worse pain down this distribution. She goes to get a second opinion. The doctor decides to open her leg up to do an exploratory surgery. He goes in, he looks inside, he sees the nerve has been severed. So a big question became, well, what severed the nerve? Was it the surgeon or was it possibly the fracture when she broke her foot or broke her ankle? That was a big causation question. Then another big question we had was she developed complex regional pain syndrome. Well, you can develop that from an initial ankle fracture without ever cutting the nerve. So how do we know her CRPS was not caused from the initial fall? So these were some big contested questions that we had to deal with. And the medicine was on our side. We felt we had good subsequent treaters who could address the medicine. But the interesting thing that turned the case, according to the jury, was none of those things. The fact that they seized on was when she was going to the doctor in the last appointment she went to, she decided to record the conversation, which you can do in Georgia with only one party consent. So she pulls out her cell phone and she was concerned about not being able to understand all the medicine. So she just puts her phone down and records it. And she tells him for about 30 minutes that she has this burning pain, like an ice pick pain. She has all this description. Well, he puts in his note that she's improving and to follow up in six weeks, only mild pain. And then he says, follow up in six weeks. Well, he left the practice two weeks later. So the jury was aghast that he's telling her to follow up and he's not even going to be there. And what he's putting in his treatment note is demonstrably false based on this audio recording. So the jury found, which was one of the standard of care violations, that he'd abandoned her and he had not followed up with her and cared for her like he should have. I don't know if that was the thing that turned the jury completely, but the jurors we spoke to afterwards said that that was a significant fact for them, that he had done this to her. So the jury came back. The last offer we had before trial was 150000 The jury came back at $4 million, and we'll be dealing with some appeals now, but we expect ultimately to get paid on the case. Did they give you your, your uh, attorney fees too? Because I know you could do that in Georgia after you, you ding them, you go back and you ding them again. You can. We, we did file a motion for attorney's fees where in Georgia, if you win the case, you can file a motion for fees and the jury can consider them and include them. Jury considered it, but they declined to include them. 
I think it had something to do with it was Friday evening before the long holiday weekend. But whatever it was, they did not give us additional attorney's fees on top of the verdict. All right. Let me ask you, I know every time they call it the practice of law and every time that you do a trial, you evolve and you learn stuff, things that you did that you thought, wow, that was effective. That one's going to be part of my repertoire going forward. Or wow, that was an error in judgment. I got away with this one. I will not make that error in judgment. So can you share with us any of those moments you had in that trial? Yeah, the I would say we put a lot of stock into the subsequent treating physician. His opinion aligned with ours, and we felt that the jury would accept him just because he's a treater. He's not a hired expert. And they did not accept him as much as I thought they would. So that surprised me a little bit. So these artificial distinctions in our mind of, well, he's a hired expert versus a retained expert, I mean, that may have some traction. But I think more than anything what the jury pays attention to with experts is their personal credibility when they testify. They don't care about the credentials as much. That has less impact. Their status and how they get in the case doesn't seem to have as much impact, but it's just their personal credibility of their in their demeanor and the internal logic of what they're saying. But a lot of it is the emotional part. For example, the defense had an expert that I found to be not very credible and is very aggressive. He was hostile towards me, but he was very much of an advocate. But the jury loved the guy. They were like, well, he really believes what he's saying. And my impression was that he's just a hired gun advocate. He's done this a whole bunch. He's tied into the podiatry industry. But the jury really responded to him. He was funny. He was aggressive. They liked that he fought with me. So that was kind of a lesson. It's hard to separate your own personal biases and feelings and and get a true assessment of what how the jury is going to perceive somebody. So focus groups are very important. We had focus group this this case. You know, you can never really focus group it to the same level as an actual trial. It's just not going to happen. But that was a lesson I took away, you know, not to buy in too much with your own experts, but to be cast a very critical eye and to get outside people to help evaluate too. That's helpful. Give us a couple of your favorite moments in the trial. Most memorable moments. Yeah, I would say... Other than the verdict being read. <laughs> <laughs> the verdict was a good one. I would say we used a lot of demonstratives and opening statement. I think they really landed. I mentioned that we had that 3D printed fibula bone, the, lower, the small bone in the leg. Uh, but we also had plastic or uh, rubber tubing to simulate the nerve. So we could actually hold these things up and then cut the nerve and show how a neuroma would develop on the end of the nerve. So I could tell jury connected with the medicine and we were able to simplify it using these models. And I just can't overstate that enough, particularly in medical cases. It's really helpful to have something tangible that the jury can look at to help explain a medical concept, whether it's a balloon, a red balloon for a hematoma or tubing for a nerve or the bone, things that they can see and feel because it gives you the opportunity to get close to the jury physically while you're showing something. And then the jury gets close to you and you're creating a community of learning and it boosts your credibility. It relaxes them because they feel like they can understand these principles and be in a position to judge the conduct. But that felt very good in the moment. I think that was impactful. Great. Well, we're going to do a full case analysis on this verdict. Now, was this case on CBN? Because I know you're wondering what they're you are one of their more favorite people in Georgia. I don't know why. It could be the 
they don't have enough people that are have the red hair going, so they want to be diverse. <laughs> They're based in Georgia, so I think a lot of it's just proximity and convenience. And uh, but I've got a good relationship with them, and I love when they come to court because gives me a chance to watch the trials later. Oh yeah, and see things. I'm, your own worst critic is hard to watch sometimes because you're like, that's not true. And when we watch them together, I'm a bigger critic of you than you. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget that. I'm like, Lloyd, I'm the second worst I mean, I critic. I 20 million, but you probably get 25. You wouldn't mess this up. That's your talent, Ambrose. Was it on CBN? Yeah, it was. Oh, good. Then when we do the case analysis, we're going to get some clips. It was. We can see, you know, these demonstrations of this because we are going to do a, a case analysis on this verdict, July 26 at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So that's going to be great. So people can tune in for that and really get, we call this light learning. That's going to be deeper learning, right? Yeah. Well, that's going to be great. Well, Lloyd. I appreciate you coming here and it's been great. And it's been great too, because now I've known you for a few years now, but there's parts of your story with your brother that I never knew, which I can only, how many years ago was that that he passed? It's been seven years now. Yeah. Wow. So is that your only family member you've lost so far? Yeah. I've got three other siblings, all, all older and they're all doing well. Yeah. You know, I lost my two oldest brothers in, mm. in 2021 and and that's a real wake-up call, too, for yourself, for your own life. You realize your own mortality and the preciousness of those relationships and your yeah. lives. So that we just It's impossible to really appreciate it until you personally experience that loss of a loved one. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of truth to that. I've really enjoyed talking with you today. These are I love podcasting. I've mentioned to you. I know. I forgot. Let's <laughs> talk about you. Wait, what's the name of your podcast? Yeah, my podcast is called Face the Jury. Face the Jury. It's on all the major platforms. I love it. It gives me a great platform to invite my friends and colleagues and clients to share their stories and to help sort of raise awareness about medical malpractice. And I was mentioning one of the most popular downloads, I'm told by my production folks, is the one where I had a defense lawyer that I've had trials with frequently over the years. Very formidable opponent. I've gotten the best of him. Some trials, other trials, he's gotten the best of me, unfortunately, but very good lawyer and likes to talk. Probably talked a little bit too much, some of the topics, but anyway, that was a, a lot of fun to do that podcast, but it's a great medium to reach people and to you know, talk about things that um, you otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity to. So just like today, it's been a great experience and uh, I appreciate you having me on. Take care, buddy. Bye. Join us September 20th to 23rd in New York City for TLU Live. We're going to have some of the greatest trial lawyers in the country coming from Brian Panish, Ben Morelli. Judy Livingston, Joe Freed, Zoe Littlepage, Rex Paris, and the list goes on and on. And not only will we have four lecture tracks, but we're gonna have seven workshop tracks where you can work on and hone a specific skill in a small group taught by a great trial lawyer. The website is tlunyc.com. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University. Produced and powered by LawPods.